Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful because we know that you are, that you're here with us, that you have not left us as orphans. So your presence is with us, and your spirit is with us as we open your word, and so we pray for our hearts to be open, and for our minds to be open, for our ears to hear your truth. And we pray through Jesus. Amen. Well, we're beginning a new series of messages today from Titus chapter 3, and we're going to be focusing on the life-changing work of the Holy Spirit. We're not just looking at the way that the gospel saves us, we're also looking at the way that the gospel shapes us. So it's two things, two ways that the gospel works in our life. What we're going to do is we're going to begin our series today in Titus 3, and then if the Lord wills, on the 20th, we're going to resume our series in Titus. Now, next week, we're going to hear from a very uh, special guest speaker, uh, Beth's brother Brady. It's a lot to say. Beth's brother Brady and his wife Stephanie, they are missionaries in Lausanne, Switzerland, and uh, they're going to be visiting, and so Brady will be uh, speaking for us next Sunday. Now, Stephanie is the daughter of the late Stephen Belock. And uh, for more than 50 years, uh, Stephen spread the good news to the native people of Ukraine uh, through radio broadcasts, smuggling Bibles behind the Iron Curtain, uh, printing and distributing all kinds of materials in the Ukrainian language. And then when the Iron Curtain fell at the fall of communism, uh, he returned to the Ukraine uh, country and established a church there that is still going uh, today. And so, uh, uh, he is also known for translating the hymn, While on the Sea, which is number 774 in your songbook uh, today. So, uh, uh, so, Stephen was the father of Stephanie. It's like I'm quoting from you know, numbers right now. Stephen, the father of Stephanie, the wife of Brady. So, uh, Brady will be our speaker uh, next week, and uh, um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to you hearing from him. Now, as we learned in our previous series from Titus, there are two really long sentences in Titus. But together, these two sentences, they, they tell us so much about the gospel. They are, they are a comprehensive yet concise explanation in two sentences of the entire gospel message. And these two sentences, one is in Titus 2 and one is in Titus 3, they're so complementary of each other as they represent the core of Christianity. Uh, they're the peanut butter and jelly of the gospel sandwich. They're the beans and rice of the gospel jambalaya. They're the beef and beans of the gospel chili. So they go together, they belong together, and they're telling us the same message. Now, our previous series focused on that one sentence from Titus 2, 11 through 14. And my plan had been all along when I started these series of messages to jump right into the second sentence, which is in Titus 3, 4 through 8. But I couldn't get past the conjunction. Can I get a shout out to a conjunction junction? And Schoolhouse Rock, right? 
I couldn't get past the conjunction there, but for the conjunction go I. A conjunction is used to introduce a phrase or a clause, and it is a contrasting statement with what has already been mentioned or had already been spoken. So the conjunction sits there as a contrast between what is about to be said and what has been said previously. For example, he spoke earnestly about Jesus, but they wanted to talk about lucky charms ratios. He told a joke about William Shatner, but no one laughed. He told another joke about the harvesters going to Crete, but no one got it. He tells lame jokes, but he makes her coffee every morning, so she laughs. What the Apostle Paul is telling Titus in this really long sentence, there are 70 words in this one sentence. The 70 words after this conjunction are life-changing. Now, you have to understand that I'm not using the word life-changing lightly. Because Paul is talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who are in Christ, as the washing of regeneration and renewal. The washing of regeneration and renewal. So this is why I'm not using the words life-changing lightly. Now, have you noticed lately how everyone, and by everyone I mean everyone today, is into surveys? Have you noticed this? Like, you reach out to technical support, and then would you take a brief survey about your support request? You you buy something online, would would you please answer a few questions about your shopping experience? I mean, let me tell you how bad it's gotten. You call your grandma, and at the end, it's how likely are you to recommend this call to grandma to a friend? I mean, these surveys are, are getting out of control. What if your life in Christ, what if your life in Christ, because you are in Christ and Christ is in you, what if it was explored, what if it was presented to you as some sort of Likert scale, for example? My life fully and faithfully reflects the life-changing washing of regeneration and renewing work of the Holy Spirit. What if that question were given to you, and then you had these choices, not at all, a little, moderately, very much, or extremely. I mean, what if that was the way that you were assessing where you are right now in your spiritual life in Christ, that it fully and faithfully reflects the life-changing washing of regeneration and renewing work of the Holy Spirit. So, because we need the truth of this life-changing washing of regeneration and the renewing work of the Holy Spirit to be true in our lives, I wanted to start at the conjunction and work my way forward. But the more I mold, the more I realize that we need to spend some time looking at the 68 words before the conjunction. 
we need to spend some time looking at the contrasting ideas that are mentioned before you get to that conjunction. Before the description of what our life is like because we're in Christ, we have to spend a little bit of time in those 68 words of the contrast. So let's read again from Titus chapter 3. I'll begin in verse 1. We're just going to read the first three verses which says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another." Man, there's a lot going on in those 68 words. There's quite a bit that's, that we're right there just trying to wrestle through. So I look at these three verses, and then I, I see several things. I, I see that there are, there are two reminders in this teaching. And uh, these two reminders are a reminder of the way that we should be. They're a reminder of the way we used to be. I see two tensions in this teaching. It's a tension between the spiritual life and the physical life, the, the new life versus the old life. I see a, a tension between doctrine and, and disposition, right? A creed versus character. But then I look at these three verses and I see automatically two mistakes that we make. The first is that we view these teachings or practices as requirements for salvation, and I don't know which one is worse because the second mistake we make is that we view these teachings or practices as self-help sanctification. And then I look at these three verses, just these 68 words, and I look and I say, boy, we look at stuff like this today and automatically we come up with two ways to exempt ourselves from these teachings. We say, well, these teachings are optional. And then we say, these teachings are situational. So, so right now, if you're keeping score at home, you're probably thinking, wow, that's like eight things. I mean, we're going to be here all day. I mean, can't the guys in the booth do something about this, right? Aren't there some lights you could flash to turn the microphone off or something to get this guy to stop talking? You know, Larry says, when I feed my cows, I don't give them the entire barn full of hay. And I have to remind Larry, once again, the people of God are sheep, not cows. So yes, there is a lot going on in these three verses, but before you start pinching your children or your husband so you can take them out into the lobby, let me tell you that I feel no pressure to cover all of this today. So instead, we're just going to look at the first reminder, and we're going to look at the two ways that we try to exempt ourselves from this teaching. Now, keep in mind that a reminder suggests what? It suggests something that we should already know. A reminder is given because it's something that we should already know. It should already be true. We should already be practicing this. So the first reminder is the way we should be. The way we should be. The first reminder has everything to do with the lives that we should live because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. I want you to say that with me. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. I think sometimes we forget how those two things go together. 
Because we are in Christ, it means that Christ is in us. And so if you're, if you're paying attention to the flow here, the last verse in Titus chapter 2 in your Bibles, in verse 15, is a continuation into chapter 3 verse 1, because originally they would have been written together, not separated like we have them here. And it's a continuation of thought here. And so it's, it's talking about the importance of reminding those who are in Christ, because Christ is in them, that there's a certain life they practice. There's a certain way that they live because they have clothed themselves with Christ. And it, it means there's seven things here. To be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Now, what Paul is telling Titus, he's saying, remind the people who are in Christ because Christ is in them that as Christians, we have an obligation or a duty not just to be good citizens, but we have an obligation or a duty to be good neighbors. And the reason for this is because we wear the name of Christ, that we have clothed ourselves with Christ. Now, these reminders are far more than just these generic, what would Jesus do generalities. These reminders are specific actions. They're practices associated with the lifestyle of those who would follow Jesus. It's a way that we define with real flesh and blood what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Titus is not the only place in the Bible where we encounter teaching such as this. The demand that grace places on the lives of those who believe in Jesus Christ. The way believers should behave is a constant theme throughout the Bible. It's a frequent reminder of who we are and how we are to live because we are in Christ and because Christ is in us. Now, I'm using the word practice and practices because the literal definition is the actual application or use of an idea, belief, or method, as opposed to theories. See, it's the actual practice, not just a theory of how we should live. It's the customary, habitual, or expected procedure or way of doing something. So, I'm using the word practices and practice to impress upon us the actual application of our belief in Jesus Christ as a practice or as practices. When you are in Christ and Christ is in you, there is an actual application of your belief in Jesus Christ. There is a customary, habitual, or expected way of living out your belief. Now, this is going to be really lame, and this is going to be really corny, but I already warned you. So, here goes. Think about the word belief. All you have to do is rearrange the last two letters, and it's be life. So, belief is how we are, be life. I know it's lame and it's corny, but it's my lame, it's my corny. Belief is about be life. And so there's these two related questions that we ask, not just here in Titus, but anytime we come across teachings such as this in the Bible. What are we to do with teachings such as these? 
How are we to view or approach or a practice a teaching like this? So that's why I told you that, that those two questions, they bring up those two tensions. They bring up those two mistakes. They, they bring up all kinds of things. I mean, does, does grace mean I don't have to pay attention to my behavior? So there's all of these tensions, these, these mistakes. So what I want to do is I want to I look today at just the two ways that, that we try to exempt ourselves from teachings such as this in the Bible. The first one is that we try to see these teachings or practices as optional. Now, what I mean by this is that the pursuit of grace has, in some places, pushed away the demand of grace for holy living. It's ironically insisting on the very same thing insisted by relativism. I mean, think about the common phrases that you hear today, such as, no one tells me what to do. No one tells me how to live my life. I do what I want when I want. Now, these sentiments used to be reflective of secular culture. But it's now painfully and tragically so more reflective of Christian culture. This mindset, these phrases are more and more heard in Christian evangelical circles today. I mean, some Christians treat saved by grace as a clothing optional experience. I mean, it may be liberating for you, but it has a negative impact on us. Grace, it frees us from the law of sin and death. Grace, it binds us to the law of love and life. Grace frees us to live in freedom, in liberty, but with responsibility. It is for freedom that you have been set free, the Apostle Paul says, to a group of believers in the city of Galatia struggling with how to use their freedom in Christ. And so he talks to them about how it's the way that we use our freedom in Christ, what we use our freedom in Christ to do, which makes all the difference. Author Jefferson Bethke compares freedom and liberty with skydiving. He says that, it's, that freedom and liberty is it's like skydiving. Now, those of you who have ever jumped out of an airplane, right, and had a parachute on, you've, you've experienced a specific freedom and liberty. Now, to celebrate the second anniversary of her 25th birthday, Amy jumped out of an airplane twice one for each anniversary. Now, apparently there are some not-so-flattering photos of her freefall, but this is the only one I could guilt her into giving me. Hey, is there any way to zoom in on that? There we go. (laughs) Now, there's nothing like seeing a face filled with abject horror to brighten your day, right? You know, you feeling bad about aging? Well, take a look, you know? It's all about perspective, isn't it? I was listening to a sermon recently from the 1976 ACU Bible Lectureship, and no, Mallory, I wasn't there in person, the title of which was The Responsibility Freedom Brings. The speaker was talking about the beauty of freedom, the beauty of liberty. He talked of his personal experience of being on a boat as a young immigrant, 
of arriving in New York Harbor and seeing the Statue of Liberty for the first time. He spoke about the danger of the pursuit of liberty and freedom above all else. He spoke about the damage that's done in our lives when all we want to do is seek freedom, 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 with no responsibility. The speaker said, freedom without responsibility is irresponsibility. Even going so far as to suggest that there should be a statue right next to the Statue of Liberty, and it should be the Statue of Responsibility. The speaker asked the audience to pay attention each time the Bible talks about liberty or freedom in Christ. And then if you do, if you're reading, you'll notice that each time the Bible talks about liberty or freedom in Christ, it also talks about responsibility of those who belong to Christ. And this is why author Jefferson Bethke compares freedom with skydiving that the freedom of skydiving is tied to the restraint and the responsibility of the parachute. Now, the sermon I was listening to, by the way, was delivered by the late Stephen Belock, uh, who is the father-in-law of Brady, who is going to be our speaker next week. So, the first way that we exempt ourselves from following these teachings is that we view them as optional that we've been set free from these kind of things. But the Bible is calling us into liberty with responsibility because of who Christ is. Now, the second related way is that we view these teachings as situational. Now, this view says that that teachings like this that we find in Titus 3, 1 through 3, and in other places, that they're only applicable under a set of carefully crafted and curated exceptions. And so what's happening here is that we're looking at these seven practices and others as if it was an if-then-else formula. In other words, when it says to be submissive to rulers and authorities, we say, well, this only applies to my political party. This only applies to my preferred political choice. When it says to be obedient, we say, okay, only if I agree with them. When it says to be ready for every good work, we say, okay, that which suits me and benefits me. When it says to speak evil of no one, we say, okay, unless they speak evil of me, and then it's on like Donkey Kong. Or if speaking evil of them will get me ahead of them in the promotion line. When it says to avoid quarreling, we say, okay, unless I'm right and you're wrong and you just can't see yet that you're wrong. It says to be gentle and respectful, and we say, okay, I'll be gentle and respectful if you're gentle and respectful to me first. I'll be gentle and respectful if it benefits me. And see, this situational behavior Today, it's excused or explained as we live in a different world today, so different rules apply. That was then, this is now. But don't you see? If and where the world is different right now, it's because there is little difference, generally speaking, in the lives of those who claim Christianity and those who don't. I get it that there needs to be some nuance here, right? 
I get it that we need to find something between blind ignorance and blind indifference. There is such a thing as nonviolent protest, an absence of violence in action and deed, but also the absence of violence in our rhetoric and our speech. That we disagree on something is not a license or justification for hateful, violent rhetoric. I mean, what does it say about us as a people when being mean to others is viewed as a sign of strength and being kind to others is viewed as a sign of weakness? It says one of two things, and both at the same time. It says that we are not in Christ and that Christ is not in us. If you'll notice the last clause of verse 2, which says, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, this English word courtesy comes from a Greek word which also means gentleness, humility, meekness, and considerateness. And so, this perfect courtesy, it's evidence of two things. First, it's evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in you. To have this courtesy towards all people, this perfect courtesy is an evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. The second thing, it's the evidence of the new self, of the new you, of the fact that Christ is in you and you are in Christ. So when we as Christians do not engage with others and each other with perfect courtesy, we've made three decisions. The first decision we've made is to suppress the work of the Holy Spirit in us. The second decision we've made is to conceal the evidence of Christ in us. And the third decision we've made is to exchange the new self of our new life in Christ, the new garment that we have given, which is Christ on us. We exchange it back for that old, filthy garment of sin. There's a moment in the New Testament book of Acts when some religious people are stoning to death a follower of Jesus. They're literally picking up rocks and they're killing somebody by throwing them at him. And, and the Bible, I, I just, I missed this. I guess I never really paid attention to it. The Bible says that to carry out this act, that they took off their garments, they took off their cloaks, and they laid them down at the feet of the religious leader that was in charge. It's such a powerful metaphor that describes the impact of our behavior on others. I mean, every missive that is fired on social media is throwing stones. Every critical, every negative word, tweet, or post is a damaging weapon. And what happens when we engage in that kind of behavior is we are literally taking off the garment of Christ. And we are putting on the garment of selfishness and sin. The Bible describes this kind of behavior as biting and devouring, which consumes us. And it is not hard to see that we are in our world and we are in Christianity being consumed by the way that we treat others. The modifier of the type of gentleness, humility, or courtesy that we should have is a crazy one. It's like, it says perfect courtesy. You're like, well, that leaves me out, <laughs> right? I know because we're not perfect, but it's a Greek word which means all. It means every. 
It's a word that means without exception. Without exceptions. I'm going to say it again. It's a word that means without exception. That there are no exceptions. In all cases, no exceptions. In all scenarios, no exceptions. Having this mindset of Christ, having this attitude of Jesus is not an optional or a situational behavior if Christ is in us and we are in Christ. This is why James, the brother of Jesus, says that the tongue, our words, our rhetoric is a restless evil full of deadly poison. But he follows that up and says this is why we speak and act with mercy with mercy as those who are judged under the law of liberty. It's freedom coupled with responsibility. It's difficult to realize, but it's not hard to see the decline of Christianity in Western culture. The signs are all around us. The tragic tragedy is realizing that it is our attitudes and our behaviors towards others and each other, which is one of the mitigating reasons of the decline of Christianity in Western culture. It's the way we're treating each other. Perhaps our single greatest failure as a movement has been to reproduce. We have not been able to reproduce the life of Jesus Christ and those who wear the name of Jesus Christ. Put simply, we have not allowed the gospel to bear on our lives. We have not allowed the gospel to infiltrate our loves, our desires, and our imagination. So, we circle back to our Likert scale My life fully and faithfully reflects the life-changing washing of regeneration and renewing work of the Holy Spirit. Not at all, a little, moderately, very much, extremely. The first reminder in Titus 3, 1 through 3 focuses on the way we should live among those who are not Christians. So we ask ourselves, is there any difference in my life because Christ is in my life and I am in His? The gospel teaches me a new way. The gospel is the good news that God has accomplished our salvation for us through Christ in order to bring us into a right relationship with Him and eventually to destroy all the results of sin in the world. This is the work of the washing of regeneration and renewal that we'll continue to explore in our series. This is what the gospel is doing for those who are in Christ, whom Christ is in. Because, you know, we are not always submissive. We are not always obedient. We are not always ready for every good work. We often speak evil of others. We often quarrel and fight. We often forget who we are because we forget who we belong to. And yet the gospel speaks light into this darkness. It speaks truth into this idolatry. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we lived promoting and perpetrating our own personal rebellion, Christ paid the price for the punishment that we deserved. And while we are not, Jesus is fully and faithfully submissive and obedient and ready for every good work. And yet Jesus was despised. 
He was reviled. He was hated. He was condemned. Even when evil was being spoken of him, he spoke no evil of anyone. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, so he did not open his mouth. And then, when he did speak about those who treated him with such injustice, with such cruelty, with such hatred, those who slandered him, those who spit on him, when he did speak, he said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Let's pray. Father, if we could be this way faithfully and fully all the time, we wouldn't need you. And it's because we don't that really shows in our heart what our greatest need is. So I ask that you forgive us when we think that our greatest need is to justify ourselves, to excuse ourselves, to defend ourselves. But that we stare deeply into this law of liberty as those who act in mercy. That we look carefully into the cross of Christ, at the cross of Christ, for all that he has done for us. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit, I know that your Holy Spirit works and I know that your Holy Spirit is working. I pray that it would work in our lives, that it would take these truths that we have heard today and plant them as seed in the soil of hearts who are receptive. And I pray through Jesus, amen. Would you stand please? Our elders and their wives are going to be forward as we sing this.